Section 39 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter 8 The Red Ball and the Black Ball Carom. On the following day, which was Thursday, something tragic took place at a short distance from St. Malo, near the Pont du Décollet, at a spot where the cliff is lofty and where the sea is deep a tongue of rocks in the form of a lance-head which is connected with the land by a narrow isthmus runs out into the water and there ends abruptly in a great perpendicular reef nothing is of more frequent occurrence in the architecture of the sea in order to reach the plateau of the perpendicular rock from the shore one follows an inclined plane the slope of which is sometimes decidedly steep on a plateau of this description, about four o'clock in the afternoon, stood a man enveloped in a large military cloak, and probably armed beneath it, a fact easily recognized from the angular folds of his mantle. The peak on which this man stood was a tolerably extensive platform, dotted with great cubes of rock like immense paving-stones, which left narrow passages between them. This platform, on which grew short, thick tuft, ended on the side towards the sea, in an open space, terminating in a vertical escarpment. This escarpment, elevated sixty feet above high water, seemed as though cut by the plummet. Its angle was broken on the left, however, and presented one of those natural staircases peculiar to granite cliffs whose very inconvenient steps sometimes require the strides of giants or the leaps of clowns this fall of rocks descended perpendicularly to the sea and plunged into it it was almost a breakneck angle nevertheless in case of necessity one could embark there under the very wall of the cliff the breeze was blowing the man muffled in his cloak firm on his legs with his left hand clasping his right elbow, was closing one eye and applying the other to a telescope. He seemed to be absorbed in intense scrutiny. He had approached the brink of the precipice and stood there motionless, his glance fixed immovably on the horizon. The tide was high. The waves beat against the base of the cliff below him. The object which this man was observing was a vessel in the offing, which was, in truth, behaving strangely. This vessel, which had left the port of St. Malo hardly an hour before, had come too behind the banquetier. She was a three-master. She had not cast anchor, perhaps because the bottom would only permit her to swing on the edge of the cable, and because the vessel would have strained on her anchor under the cut water. She had contented herself with lying too. The man, who was a coast guard, as was evident from his uniform cape, was watching all the maneuvers of the three-master, and seemed to be taking mental notes of them. The vessel had come to, with her head-sheets hauled to windward, which was indicated by the fore-topsail being laid aback, and the wind left in the main topsail. She had hauled aft the mizzen-sail and trimmed the mizzen-topsail as close as possible, so as to offset the sails by each other, and make but little headway or leeway. She did not care to present too much sail to the wind, because she had only braced the fore-topsail so that it hung perpendicular to the keel. 
In this manner, lying to, she did not sag to leeward more than half a league an hour. It was still broad daylight, especially on the open sea and on the crest of the cliff. The lower part of the coast was becoming dark. The coast guard, wholly absorbed in his duty, and carefully keeping a watch on the offing, had not thought of scrutinizing the rock beside and below him. His back was turned towards the sort of hardly practicable staircase which placed the plateau of the cliff in communication with the sea. He had not observed that something was moving there. On that staircase, behind a projecting point, there was someone, a man hidden there, to all appearances before the arrival of the Coast Guard. From time to time a head emerged from the shadow beneath the rock, looked up and watched the watcher. The head, covered with a large American hat, was that of the Quaker-looking man who had been talking among the stones of the Petit Bay with Captain Zuela ten days previously. All at once the Coast Guard's attention appeared to redouble. He rapidly wiped the glass of his telescope with his sleeve and pointed it intently at the three-master. A black spot just detached itself from her side. This black spot, resembling an insect on the sea, was a boat. The boat seemed desirous of reaching the shore. It was manned by several sailors who were rowing vigorously. It veered off little by little and directed its course towards the Point du Décalé. The Coast Guard had reached the point of most intense scrutiny. He had approached still closer to the extreme edge of the cliff. At that moment a man of lofty stature, the Quaker, rose behind the Coast Guard at the top of the staircase. The watcher did not see him. This man paused for a moment with arms at his side and fists clenched, and with the eye of a sportsman taking aim he gazed at the back of the Coast Guard. Only four paces separated him from the Coast Guard. He placed one foot in front, then halted. He took a second step and paused again. He made no other movement than walking. All the rest of his body was like a statue. His foot trod the turf noiselessly. He took the third step and paused. He almost touched the Coast Guard, who was still motionless with his telescope. The man slowly brought his two clenched fists on a level with his collarbone, then his forearms abruptly descended and his two fists struck the Coast Guard on the shoulders as though fired from a cannon. The shock was fatal. The Coast Guard had not time to utter a cry. He fell head foremost from the cliff into the sea. The soles of his shoes were visible during the space of a flash of lightning. It was like the fall of a stone. The sea closed again. Two or three great circles formed on the dark water. Nothing remained but the telescope, which had escaped from the Coast Guard's hand and had fallen on the grass. The Quaker bent over the brink of the precipice, watched the circles disappear in the waves, waited a few minutes, then straightened himself up, humming between his teeth, Monsieur de la police est mort en perdant la vie. Note. Monsieur of the police died by losing his life. He bent over a second time. Nothing made its appearance. 
only at the spot where the Coast Guard had been engulfed a sort of reddish-brown thickness had formed, which spread over the undulations of the waves. It is probable that the Coast Guard had fractured his skull on some submarine rock. His blood rose up and formed a stain on the foam. As the Quaker watched this reddish spot, he resumed, Un quart d'heure avant sa mort, il était encore. A quarter of an hour before his death, he was still. He did not finish. He heard a very soft voice say behind him, Here you are, Rantin, good day. You have just killed a man. He turned round and beheld fifteen paces behind him at the mouth of one of the small passages between the rocks, a little man with a revolver in his hand. He replied, as you see, good day, Sieur Clubin. The little man started. You recognize me? You recognized me, retorted Rantin. In the meantime, they could hear the sound of oars on the water. It was the boat observed by the Coast Guard, which was approaching. Sieur Clubin said in a low voice, as though speaking to himself, That was quickly done. What can I do for you? asked Rantin. Not much. It is just ten years since I have seen you. You must have prospered in your affairs. How are you? Well, said Rantaine, and you? Very well, replied Sieur Clubin. Rantaine took a step towards Clubin. A small, sharp noise struck his ear. It was Sieur Clubin cocking his revolver. Rantaine, we are fifteen paces apart. That's a good distance. Remain where you are. Ah, ejaculated Rantin, what do you want with me? I have come to have a talk with you. Rantin did not stir. Sieur Clubin went on. You have just assassinated a coast guard. Rantin cocked the brim of his hat and replied, You have already done me the honor to tell me so. In less precise terms, I said a man. I now say a coast guard. That Coast Guard was number 619. He was the father of a family. He leaves a wife and five children. That's as it should be, said Rantin. A momentary pause ensued. These are picked men, these Coast Guards, pursued Clubin. Nearly all of them old sailors. I have noticed, said Rantin, that these men generally do leave a wife and five children. Sieur Clubin continued. Guess how much this revolver cost me. Tis a fine weapon, replied Rantin. What do you value it at? I value it highly. It cost me a hundred and forty-four francs. You must have bought it, said Rantin, at the shop for weapons at the Ruelle Coutanchet. Clubin resumed. He did not utter a cry. A fall cut short the voice. Sieur Clubin, there will be a breeze tonight. I am the only one in the secret. Do you still stop at the Jean Tavern? asked Rantaine. Yes, one is not badly off there. I remember having eaten good sauerkraut there. You must be excessively strong, Rantaine, such shoulders as you have. I should not like to get a rap from you. When I came into the world I was so puny-looking that they did not know whether they would succeed in raising me. They did succeed, luckily. Yes, I still stop at that old Jean Tavern. 
Do you know, Sieur Clubin, how I recognized you? Because you recognized me, I said to myself, no one but Clubin could do that. And he advanced a step. Stand back where you were, Rantaine. Rantaine retreated and indulged in this aside. One becomes a child before such a machine as that, Sieur Clubin continued. This is the situation. We have on our right, in the direction of St. Enogat, three hundred paces from here, another coast guard, number 618, who is alive, and on our left, in the direction of St. Lenaire, a custom-house station. That makes seven armed men who can arrive here in five minutes. The rock will be surrounded. The pass will be guarded. Impossible to escape. There is a corpse at the foot of the cliff. Rantaine cast a sidelong glance at the revolver. As you say, Rantaine, it is a pretty weapon. Perhaps it is only loaded with powder. But what of that? One shot will suffice to bring an ardent force. I can fire six. The alternate splash of the oars was becoming very distinct. The boat was not very far away. The big man looked at the little man in a strange way. Sieur Clubin spoke in a voice that was more and more tranquil and gentle. Rantaine, the man in the boat which is approaching, on learning what you have just done here, would lend armed assistance and aid in arresting you. You pay ten thousand francs to Captain Zuela for your passage. By the way, you would have found it cheaper with the smugglers of Plainmont, but they would only have taken you to England, and besides, you cannot run the risk of going to Guernsey, where people have the honor of knowing you. I return to the situation. If I fire, you are arrested. You pay Zuela for your flight ten thousand francs. You have given him five thousand in advance. Zuela will keep the five thousand francs and will go off with them. And there you have it. Rantaine, you are well disguised. That hat, that queer coat, and your gaiters change you. You have forgotten the spectacles. You have done well to let your whiskers grow. Rantaine forced a smile which bore close resemblance to a gnashing of teeth. Clubin continued, Rantaine, you have on a pair of American breeches with double fobs. In one is your watch. Keep it. Thanks, Sieur Clubin. In the other there is a small box of wrought iron which opens and shuts with a spring. It is an old sailor's snuff-box. Pull it out of your fob and toss it to me. But this is robbery. You are free to call the guard. And Clubin gazed steadily at Rantaine. Stay, Mes Clubin, said Rantaine, advancing a step and holding out his open palm. Mes was a flattery. Remain where you are, Rantaine. Mes Clubin, let us come to an understanding. I offer you half. Clubin folded his arms, from which peeped the muzzle of the revolver. Rantaine, for whom do you take me? I am an honest man. And he added after a pause, I must have all. Rantaine muttered between his teeth, This fellow is made on a stiff model. Meanwhile, Clubin's eye had begun to flash. His voice became as clear and trenchant as steel. He exclaimed, 
I see that you mistake me. What you call robbery I call restitution. Listen, Rantaine. Ten years ago you quitted Guernsey by night, taking with you from the treasury of a concern fifty thousand francs which belonged to you, and forgetting to leave there fifty thousand francs which belonged to another man. Those fifty thousand francs, stolen by you from your partner, excellent and worthy Mes Lettierie, amount with compound interest for ten years to eighty thousand eight hundred and sixty-six francs sixty-six centimes. Yesterday you entered a money-changer's office. I will tell you his name, Rebouchet, Rue St. Vincent. You counted out to him seventy-six thousand francs in banknotes, for which he gave you three English banknotes of a thousand pounds each, plus the odd change. You placed those bank bills in the iron snuff-box in your right-hand fob. These three thousand pounds sterling make seventy-five thousand francs. In the name of Mes Lettieries, I will content myself with that. I set out tomorrow for Guernsey, and I mean to carry them back to him. Rantaine, the three-master which is lying to yonder is the Tamaulipas. You had your trunks put aboard of her last night mixed with the bags and the hammocks of the crew. You wish to quit France. You have your own reasons for so doing. You are going to Arequipa. The boat is coming to take you off. You are waiting for it here. It is coming. It can be heard in the water. It depends on me to let you go or to force you to remain. Enough said. Throw me that iron snuff-box. Rantaine opened his fob, pulled out a little box, and threw it to Clubin. It was the snuff-box. It rolled to Clubin's feet. Clubin, bent without lowering his head, picked up the snuff-box with his left hand, keeping his two eyes and the six barrels of the revolver directed towards Rantaine. Then he exclaimed, "'Turn your back, my friend!' Rantaine turned his back. Sieur Clubin placed his revolver under his arm, and pressed the spring of the snuff-box. The box opened. It contained four banknotes, three of a thousand pounds each and one of ten pounds. He folded up the three banknotes of a thousand pounds again, replaced them in the iron snuff-box, shut the box once more, and put it in his pocket. Then he picked up a pebble from the ground. He wrapped this pebble in the ten-pound note and said, "'Turn round again.' Rantaine turned round. Sieur Clubin continued, I told you that I would be content with the three thousand pounds. Here are ten pounds which I return to you. And he flung the bill, weighted with the pebble, to Rantaine. Rantaine sent the pebble and the banknote into the sea with a kick. As you please, ejaculated Clubin. Come, you must be rich. I am satisfied. The sound of oars which had been constantly approaching during this dialogue ceased. This indicated that the boat was at the foot of the cliff. Your carriage is below. You may go, Rantaine. Rantaine stepped toward the staircase and disappeared. Clubin advanced cautiously to the brink of the precipice, and thrusting his head over, watched him descend. The boat had stopped near the bottommost step of the crag at the very place where the coast guardsman fell. 
As he watched the Rantaine going down, Clubin muttered, Six hundred and nineteen is a good number. He thought that he was alone. The Rantaine thought that there were only two of them. I alone knew that there were three of us. He caught sight on the grass at his feet of the telescope which the Coast Guard had dropped. He picked it up. The sound of oars begun again. Rantaine had just leaped into the boat, and she was putting out to sea. When Rantaine was in the boat, after the first stroke of the oars, and the cliff was beginning to recede behind him, he suddenly rose erect, his face became convulsed, he pointed downward with his fist, and shouted, Ha! He is the devil himself! A low-lived scoundrel! A few seconds later, Clubin, as he stood on the summit of the cliff and pointed the telescope at the boat, distinctly heard these words, articulated by a loud voice, amid the noise of the waves. Sieur Clubin, you are an honest man, but you will not mind my writing to Lethierry to acquaint him with the facts, and here in the boats is a Guernsey sailor, who belongs to the crew of the Tamaulipas, named Ayer Tostevin. He will return to St. Malo on Zuela's next voyage, and will bear witness that I have delivered to you on behalf of Mes Lethierry the sum of three thousand pounds sterling. It was the voice of Rantaine. Clubin was a man who did things thoroughly. Motionless as the Coast Guard had been, and on the same spot, with his eye at the telescope, he did not remove his gaze from the boat for a moment. He saw it grow less among the billows, disappear, reappear, and approach the vessel which was lying to, and board it. And he could recognize Rantaine's tall form on the deck of the Tamaulipas. When the boat had been taken on board and hung at the davits, the Tamaulipas set sail. The breeze was blowing offshore. She spread all her sails. Clubin's telescope remained fixed upon her outline, growing more and more indistinct, and half an hour later the Tamaulipas was no longer anything but a black speck, diminishing on the horizon against the pallid twilight of the sky. End of Chapter 8 The Red Ball and the Black Ball Carom.